You're listening to The Turing Podcast, a production of the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Turing Podcast. This week, we're bringing you audio from uh, a conversation I had earlier this year with a couple of uh, the researchers at the Institute. Um, it's not a COVID-19 related episode, but because it was recorded in May, anything we do say about the pandemic may be out of date. Well, it certainly will be out of date by now, uh, but uh, I hope you enjoy listening to it. Today I'm joined by Dr. Kirsty Whitaker and Dr. Sarah Gibson for a discussion about the reproducibility of scientific research, why this is such an important topic and what the Alan Turing Institute is doing to promote best practices in reproducible data science. Kirsty is the programme lead for tools, practices and systems at the Alan Turing Institute and Sarah is a research software engineer at the Institute who is also a fellow of the Software Sustainability Institute as well as a rock star and subversive cross-stitcher. <laughs> and I did lift that uh, bio from your Twitter. Um, nice. Hi, Sarah, how's it going? <laughs> I am doing well, thanks, Ed. How are you? Uh, not bad. Well, as well as can be expected during during this time, like everyone. How, how, how are you doing overall? How's things going? Not so bad, yeah. Um novelty is starting to wear off a little bit now um i'm starting to find i'm bored of specific locations in my flat not just being in my flat full stop but um powering i should say we're recording on the 12th of may currently so whenever this goes out so still very much in lockdown in the uk here at the moment (laughs) yeah kirstie how are you how are you doing i'm really good i uh i feel like my I was pretty proud of my bio with my new job. This is just my third week officially working at the Turing Institute. And then I feel like Sarah's bio of being a subversive cross-stitcher was just like miles cooler <laughs> than being program lead. Um, but yeah, I'm good. I, I, a lot of the work that I have been focusing on for the last few years has been thinking about how you can work together in distributed communities across time zones and from different locations so I sort of feel like I was in a pretty good good place for uh, lockdown to come along so it's it's just the existential crisis that's uh, that's tough for me these days. Right yeah for a lot of people remote working is a very new concept I guess some of us at the institute are kind of used to this we have quite a well what shall I say fairly liberal working from home policy to begin with I'm going to kick off with a with a question which I'll go to Sarah first. Um, So reproducibility in science is such an important issue and especially in the computational sciences. Um, Why why is it such an important issue? So the way I see it is um, we're never done with science, right? Um, It's always, we're always working towards the next thing that we understand and we've got this whole wide world and universe in front of us and we know so little about it and so we're constantly trying to build upon other people's work and understand just that little bit more. The problem is if you don't have the ability to check that the work done by the person you're trying to grow from, if you don't have the ability to check that the numbers they published are what they actually got. That doesn't provide a very stable foundation for the work that you want to do. And then we see this in cases when um, errata has to be published. So errata are um, like the retraction of papers um, for when results have not been able to be verified. And this is considered generally a bad thing for the the academic scientific career path, which means that that also doesn't happen very often, if at all. So we end up with this literature of past work that is littered with errors, 
not always on purpose, sometimes most of the time, entirely by accident. And we're trying to take that knowledge and build on top of it to learn something new. But we're kind of already starting on the back foot. And that's why I think reproducibility is such an important issue. I don't know if Kirsty would like to add anything to that. I totally agree. Um, One of the things, one of my sort of strongest memories was from maybe five years ago of going out to a pub with a friend who has an undergraduate degree in sciences. He actually works at a university, but he has never done uh, research uh, as a professional career. And we were talking about why reproducibility was important. And I kept saying, you've got to code everything. You've got to write down what you've done so that people can do it again and get the same answer. And then they're much faster the next time around. And we talked and talked and talked for about sort of an hour and a half. And it was only after an hour and a half that I realized that he didn't know that when you peer review a paper, the peer reviewers don't have access to either the data or the things you did to that data in order to come up with an answer. They're just reviewing the words that you wrote. And there's this quote um, that the paper is just the advertising, that actually it's everything else that allows you to do the science that is the actual science. And then you write up a summary of it, just like you used to write up a lab report when you were in school. And we seem to have built an entire... (laughs) sort of ecosystem in academia around the advertising and not around the actual work and the work is good the work is being done really well it just is being redone over and over again and it's a waste of time it seems to me like yeah what you're saying is when people are writing scientific papers you know they're squeezing them into this format that you know existed you know perhaps hundreds of years ago when scientific journals were just uh, things that you, you sent a letter into I guess now it would be a pdf online but that's still somewhat limited and as you say it's presenting the results mostly rather than I mean you have method section of papers but ha- in what level of detail is that method section going to be is it, you know thinking of the minutiae especially in the computational sciences of how the code was written and and things like things of that nature. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think um, the printing press was a really great innovation for scientific communication. But it's been a while since the printing press, <laughs> and we haven't moved really on a little bit moved, that, yeah. but not massively when it comes to reading PDFs <laughs> online. We're definitely not like actually leveraging the potential that we could of this great worldwide web. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Creating more, like if we're going to be looking at all of this scientific research, all of these results, all of these graphs online, um, the whole point of the web is that it can be interactive. And and yet we still have these static things. Actually, um, your point about having the method section in a paper um, reminded me of this cool little um, trick that I learned about a couple of months ago at a conference and it's like called the reproducibility drawing task I don't know if um, you've heard of it but it's basically seven small steps um, and all you need is a sheet of paper and a pencil and it's like step one draw a square and then draw another square at a 15 degree angle to the bottom of the first square and then draw four lines down from each corner of the second square and now draw a circle next to the second square draw a smaller circle on top of the first circle, draw two upward lines from the side of the first circle and draw two triangles on top of the second circle. And I did this in like a little Slack channel with some friends. So and I'm like trying to all... visualise that and I've not quite... I've... <laughs> exactly. So we all like took photos and like sent these into a Slack message and like we had some really modernistic art approaches. But the actual answer is... It's a cat sat on a table looking out of a window. And the point I'm making with this is that you can write super clear instructions um, and you can think this is as clear as day. But if you give those to someone else, um, they might just not reproduce the same thing um, that you have because it's open to interpretability. And, And, you know, 
you might have what we call expert blindness when you've been writing these instructions and you may not have thought to write down a certain step or a certain nuance, a certain trick about something in the middle there, which will just throw off somebody who's not completely familiar with what you're working towards at all. Forgotten to have explained certain jargon, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Um, and all of these like can throw up roadblocks to some um, to someone who's just like coming along and trying to learn about what you've done and trying to reproduce it and like and to be to be able to build on top of it. Right. Yeah. I, certainly, that's an interesting thought. That the methods sections of papers are really instructions on how to do to do reproducibility but they're limited by the reality that they've got to be a set of instructions that can fit into a paper um and that is an inherent limit of itself and that scientists are not realizing the potential of the internet at the moment to enhance reproducibility in science go on Kirsten. one of one of the other things that's really ridiculous, sorry, this podcast is not supposed to be about bashing papers, but I'll say this one more <laughs> thing, which is that uh, people are sometimes accused of plagiarism and plagiarizing their own method sections. And I would love for that to be like a logical kind of step that we break out of because actually for computational research, the method section should be computer generated, right? Like, it should be the same where you sit and you build different components and you put different blocks together. Why would you rewrite a method section? Why wouldn't you just, just like you do with code, bring the descriptions from the different areas all together? And it's not plagiarism. It's actually trying to reproducibly communicate what you're doing. I don't quite yeah. understand what, why, why would people consider it plagiarism? What, where does that come in? So because the text is exactly the same from a previous paper. So if I have a paper that I analyze like brain imaging data from and I write about how I pre-process that data, so that's not doing the actual analysis. So maybe I'm interested in um, how the outside of the brain, the cortex changes with age. That's the analysis, but there's lots and lots of pre-processing that I have to do with the images to be able to get them into a space where I can do that analysis. And those pre-processing steps are truly, literally identical across hundreds, if not thousands of papers. And yet, if you copied and pasted text from any one of those other papers, including ones that you have written yourself, it would technically, and they do often get caught by plagiarism checks at um, publishers, Sarah, I don't know if you think about Yeah, that. I was just thinking, like, and this ironically has come about because we've tried to automate the step in which we look for plagiarism. We have certain tools that, um, you know, search text for identical copies. And that's, and that's the reason why people are being accused of plagiarising themselves is because the accusation has come from a machine that doesn't know any better. So there's actually like more advanced data science going on in the plagiarism check than there is in the scientific communication of the advanced data science. I don't know, Ed, if you want to move us on to another question, because I could literally <laughs> spend the entire podcast about this, but I don't think the listeners want to like join me in my rage quite so deeply. Uh, having a go at scientific journals, that's probably not the purpose of the podcast, but um, but no, it's it's an interesting thing to know. I think especially if you're listening to this like as a layperson who's not a researcher yourself who's publishing papers you might think well surely science like scientists are going to be the most up-to-date technologically advanced people in the way that they operate and work but actually like a lot of institutions you know when you have legacy systems and ways of thinking um it's quite hard to change it uh well Maybe it's not hard for any one person to change their ways of working, but to change the entire scientific community is a bit more challenging. I'll move on to the next question then. Um, reproducibility isn't the exact same thing as replicability, where different research groups arrive at the same scientific findings via their own experiments. To what extent do you think that scientists currently attempt to reproduce the exact methods of other research groups 
rather than relying on replication of findings from similar but different experiments where these happen to occur. So how so do so when people are doing their own like uh, when they're trying to reproduce uh, research, um, how, you know how literally do they follow those methods sections? Um, is that a big part of peer review at the moment? This difference between different um, words, the reproducibility versus replicability, by the way, I've given a lot of talks about that. And um, people in the scientific community have big feelings about the um, definitions of those words. So I always now like start my talks by saying it doesn't really matter what word we're using. It matters that we're all talking about the same concept. And I would say that because of the problems that we were just describing around not communicating everything that needs to be known in order to exactly computationally reproduce the exact same numbers as another study. People have almost always tried to replicate and extend or replicate with a twist or conceptually replicate, but not quite. It's a little bit different. And the problem with all of that, even though it's very, very valuable and it's really important for sort of how scientific knowledge can go forwards, the problem is that when things don't align, so when you don't replicate what had already happened, when you don't get conceptually the same answer, you can't dig down far enough to be able to understand why. So a big example might be one of the most replicable findings in brain imaging is that um, the cortex, like I was describing before, the the outside of the brain where all of the brain cells are, uh, gets thinner during childhood and adolescence. And that is just a a massively replicable finding. You look at any study with uh, children and teenagers in it, and you will see that this, this part of this outside part of the brain gets thinner. It's usually associated with sort of specialization and becoming better at particular tasks and it's great it's and it's a really really strong replicable finding if you don't know how to reproduce those findings it doesn't really matter if everyone's finding them in the same way because essentially you're saying well it doesn't matter like in general we always get the same results the problem is that there are other studies for example um, looking at people who experience psychosis so schizophrenia and looking at their, the thickness of their cortex versus people who don't have those symptoms. And those studies are wildly different. You could look at almost every different study will give you a different answer, even though they are, they say, if you read the paper, they say they're asking the same question. And you don't know why the answers are different. So there's different people going into the studies. So that makes sense. Like different groups of people will have different answers but different um, thicknesses of their brain, you might find different results. But also the image processing might be different. They might have different types of statistics of how they ask those questions. And if you can't reproduce, then where that variability in replicating comes from, I think is really, really difficult. So one of the things that I say a lot is that reproducibility is necessary but not sufficient so we need to be pushing for reproducibility making sure that people can verify what we've done but you can verify a wrong answer you can you can reproducibly get the wrong answer every single time so it's not that that's the end of the scientific journey it's just that we seem to have like leapt over that first step of being able to accurately write down what we did so Presumably a big part of this as well is that when people, when scientists do have uh, findings from their experiments that are useful, um, let's say, yeah, in the brain imaging case, you're, um, you're able to, with a particular piece of software, accurately distinguish between um, two different kinds of brain disease. Um, and you publish that result and it's a really good Look, look how great our software is these are the results but it's not just that you, that you want um other groups to replicate that finding by applying similar methods you also want them to hopefully be able to literally use the code that you've written for that software um so they and if they use it on the same data they should get the exact same answer um and if then they may want to use it on other data to as a replicability test as well, I guess. 
Well, I'd say that just because they're using the same data and the same code, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll get exactly the same answer. So like we now get into like the whole nested, it's turtles all the way down realm of reproducibility. And I think what you described there by saying we get exactly the same answer when we run the same code on the same data is something we call repeatable. And that actually encompasses what we call a computational environment. So um, what version of the packages that the software depends on did you run? Were you running what kind of machine were you running it on? Was it a CPU versus a GPU? Um, Was it Linux versus Mac or something like that? All of these kind of things can also introduce variability into your results. And and these are other things as well. So Kirsty mentioned um, earlier on this quote that a paper is advertising of the scholarship and actually the, the actual scholarship is the code and the steps but it's also the computational environment that you do those steps in as well, because they can have massive effects. Sarah, you've segued me into the next question perfectly, because the next question was about that exact thing. Um, Because one of the big challenges associated with making computational research reproducible is maintaining that um, reproducible computing environment. Can you tell us a bit about the efforts at the Turing to help solve this problem and in particular, your work on the Binder project. Yeah, of course. Um, so we have a whole bunch of, of tools out in the software world already that helps us um, reproduce computational environments. Um, so on like a coding level, we have package managers. So if you code in Python, um, PIP or Conda might sound familiar to you. And these... Um, provide a way that you can say, okay, when I run this code, I'm using these versions of these packages and they allow you to separate out different coding environments so that you can have um, multiple spaces in your computational environment where you might have different versions of the same packages for different projects. So that's like one level we have. We then have... That, another... that just to, just to, for the listeners' sake, what why... Is it important thinking about like versions of software packages? That's it might seem like a to the layperson like a, an odd thing to worry about. Surely newer versions are better, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm not arguing that newer versions are not better, but that doesn't mean that they're reproducible. If they've right. fixed a bug moving from a lower version to a higher version that can fundamentally change the number you've got out. And it, it's almost certainly a de- better result, but it's not a repeatable result, Kirsty. I think there's, a, there's an example as well for people who, um, when their computers or their phones update every year, the software is better, the phones are more, they can do more things. But I think there's probably a lot of us that now can no longer find photos that we didn't back up that were on previous phones or we can't find charges that work anymore or we can't there's lots of things that don't work with those old models and in some cases like phones are maybe a little bit bit of a bad example because in many cases those updates are specifically because of security vulnerabilities and so we have to think about sort of moving forwards so that we keep our, our information safe but in, but in a lot of cases as well, software developers will introduce what's called a breaking change just because it's easier, just because they don't want to have to worry about maintaining the history of all of these different um, tools. And so in the same way that your like super awesome bulletproof Nokia phone doesn't necessarily share the photos or play the game Snake anymore. I feel like I'm probably the oldest person on the planet for having remembered that. No, I um, remember too, Kirsty. <laughs> you, you all, you now have all of this. This is very good. I feel very validated and young. Um, <laughs> you now can do more things with your phone, but you can't do those things. And one of the big kind of, one of the things that Sarah and I would advocate very strongly is for people to be much more explicit about changing those versions and in many cases with research code that's designed for researchers for this one particular paper they often don't actually track 
what has changed between different versions of the code and different aspects of the software. And then the other thing that I'll add on top of this, and then I'll throw back to Sarah because I'm sure she's got more to think about this, is that there are super complexities that come when you, when you have multiple packages together. So you have version one of one package, version two of another package, but combined they add in this extra layer of complexity. And so if you have a whole, what we call this computational environment, you only need to change one tiny little thing and it can have these really wild sort of effects throughout the rest of the system. That, that's really interesting way of thinking of it. As as someone with a biology background, I'm going to make an analogy that probably for the layperson might not even make it easier to understand. But I, for me, that makes you think like if you've got two different genes doing things in the in the body, in this case, the body being like the computational environment, um, gene A may do one thing, gene B may do another thing. But actually, it's if you have both of them together... Um, or different versions of them, they may express themselves in different ways. <laughs> so that's my analogy, comparing one of, packages to genes. <laughs> one of my favourite problems that we faced, uh, one of our colleagues, Louise, who's a, a research data scientist at the Turing, Louise Bowler, she um, was trying to find out why a piece of code was not reproducible. And it was because um, alphabetical ordered sorting on a Linux machine versus a Mac is different <laughs> and it took her a few months of her life to try and track down it wasn't full time just to kind of give give louise a little bit of credit there but it did take <laughs> her so long to try and figure out why when when she was running this code the first just it wasn't as simple as this but the first 10 entries were not the same and it's because linux and mac decide to order things slightly differently yeah, I experienced exactly the same thing using Nerd version 10 and Nerd version 11. They swapped the order of bubble salt. So the thing I was looking for in index one was now in last index. And that just threw off this whole complicated piece of software we have for like looking for links on web pages. And it's just like... So for the- for the non-techie people listening, that's different algor- versions of algorithms for ordering lists, lists of yeah. things, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, it literally just reversed it um, right. completely. Yeah. And I, and I think, I know we've, we've sort of spiralled off again a little bit, but I want to bring Sarah back to talking about Binder because I think Binder is just a really, really exciting project. And the, the important point, I suppose, to make is that, actually capturing your your computational environment is hard like it's it's not we were sort of smashing um the academic publishing system earlier and there are some things that like logically don't make any sense but actually trying to just take your whole computer and transfer it to somebody else so that they can run their run the analysis in exactly the same way is really hard there's a lot of different moving parts inside of there and in many cases it's not that one is right or wrong. So it's not always that, that we're fixing errors. It might just be that they are differently implemented and it has these sort of funny outcomes. But I don't know, Sarah, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about what Binder allows, allows us to do? Yeah, well, um, the point I was going to make, which has actually been beautifully illustrated by this segue, is that we just had this huge discussion about how... Um, managing your package versions can be really difficult and we need to think about that and I said earlier that it's not just your package versions it can be your your OS type and all of these things you need to think about and manage and we have we do have tools that do all of these things for you the problem is is that how we when do you have the time to learn all of these different tools like at the minute we probably we probably don't have the space or very few of us are very are lucky enough to have the space to learn all of these tools um so what project binder does has combined all of these tools into an easy to use web um service and like we will take care of all of those moving parts for you the only thing we ask is that your code is version controlled 
which means like you're tracking the changes that you've made and that it's on some kind of hosted platform. Um, so the one that most developers use is GitHub. We also ask that you provide the versions of your packages. Um, so I mentioned like pip for Python earlier on. We have like a little plain text file for working with pip that just says for this package name, I want this package version number. And pip can read in that plain text file and install all of those things. So as long as you've got your code version controlled on this platform with that file that says what your versions are, Binder will copy all of your code in that um, version controlled repository and it will build your computational environment from the instructions that are in that plain text file. And it will host that computational environment for you on, some, on a cloud computing network and it will give you access to that environment through your browser. So you haven't had to install anything. You haven't had to double check like what your computer is running versus what the researcher's computer is running. And now you have a window through your browser to interact with that code and run it and check it and change it and see what you can break. Run the analysis as well if... if or if if the yeah if the code does some sort of scientific analysis then you can run it yeah. knowing that the computation environment is the same as the person who wrote the code uh, yeah. used used so one of the one of the really cool things about this is that it's a really great way of communicating it's a much more modern and internet forward way of having people interact with the science that we that we're undertaking the data science the computational modeling whatever it happens to be but one of the things that I really love about Binder as a hashtag very important person who just sits in meetings all day long, I don't know why Sarah's laughing at this, but anyway, um, <laughs> so I sit in meetings at the moment now, I hang out in Zoom rooms and I sort of pretty unfortunately don't have time to necessarily boot up and load up a computational environment on my own computer and actually dig into the weeds of doing the analyses. What I do is I meet with members of my team or I meet with collaborators. And in most of those times, they show me what they've done. And there are really little things like, I want to see that in a different, I want to see that figure in a different color. Can you change the range on the x-axis? Can you put two figures on top of each other? Can you change these parameters slightly? There's also much, much more fundamental work of, let me just double check that the statistical model that you're running is the correct statistical model. What happens if we co-vary for an additional factor in here? Like, what, how, how do the results change if we start to understand them from multiple different directions? And what Binder allows someone like me to do is collaborate with my team because all they do is send me a link. It's just like sending a link to um, a web, any type of web page. And I can go there and in the 5, 10, 15 minutes between different meetings, I can look at their code, I can run their code, and I can even fiddle around with their code. And that's just a really beautiful way of sort of actually having active collaboration rather than just lots of meetings and PowerPoint slides. So it sounds really useful for people collaborating within their own team and just to show what they've, what they've done and how they've done it. But going back to what we were discussing earlier about, um, you know, scientists publishing their work and their, their results and methods is, could you use Binder and, and other things like it? For instance, if you wrote a scientific paper and instead of just having your written method section, you could say, please go to this link. Um, and then you'll, you'll not only be able to, um, to see, to, to read about what the methods are, but you'll be able to see them in action. You'll be able to press buttons to run code uh, in the exact computational environment that the person writing this paper uh, did so in, um, have a go. Is, is that basically the, the gist of it? Yeah, and I actually have two really awesome examples of this. One um, is um, a story that came from our colleague, Rachel, 
um, who works at the University of Manchester, and she had a PhD student who did exactly this. He had some analysis that he was running. Um, the data he was running the analysis on wasn't very big, and the analysis didn't take very long. So he um, publishes analysis code with the data on in a GitHub repository, and he used Binder to generate a link. And when he published his paper, he actually um, published the Binder link with it. And the really cool thing about this story is that between submitting his paper to the journal accepting it, was about a three-day period, and anybody in scientific career paths will tell you that never happens. It's usually months while people, um, reviewers are found, they review it, they send back comments, and so maybe there's a, a back and forth. So to have a publication turned around that quickly is astonishing. And this is because the, um, the reviewers were able to see the code, see the data, run the code on the data with very little um, barrier to entry. They literally just clicked a link and hit go. And they could see that the figures he was trying to publish were the same figures, the numbers were the same numbers. At that point, the only thing you need to review is um, like the scientific context of, is this novel or does the does this need to be out in the world you're not getting caught up in the nitty-gritty of is it i'm doing air quotes on here which is great for a podcast but is it right or wrong kind of thing right so the reviewers of the science whether they be people reviewing it as a sort of a paper or anyone who wants to sort of reproduce uh, the results and methods they can focus on is this good science rather than how, how do I get this to work? Well, exactly. It's already there, it's working, it's, you know, just go to the exactly. link. <laughs> exactly. And the other really cool example I know of this, um, so Binder is an open source project, which means not only is it a free service that you can use, but you can also take the, the code that is Binder and run that and deploy that for yourself and then edit it. So, um, the service, the Project Binder team run is mybinder.org and we launch um, 150,000 binders per week uh, across four different um, clusters, including one that I run at the Turing. Um, but because we are big and public and free, we have to put restrictions on what people can run on our platform. So your code and data has to be public. You only get limited computational resources because um we have to fund that not from our users we do that from funding bodies but that doesn't fit every research environment some people have private data some people need gpu access or like more heavy computational resources so they can take what is binder and deploy that on their own resources mm. and edit it so it fits their purpose and another one of this um this example of publishing is um a journal called eLife which is about um the, which is for the life sciences and they've done exactly this they now have an online journal which has a binder as a back end and when mm. you look at the papers on their website their figures you can interact with, you can change values and recreate the graph. And that's all happening on a, on a similar binder infrastructure in the back end. So we, we are now getting was, God, Sorry, I was going to say, I can imagine if I was a particular like researcher using some supercomputer that my research lab only has access to, that you could connect up a binder instance to... Um, to that and then sort of show off your amazing research to the world if that makes yeah. sense yeah exactly and um, one of the things binder services are used most for is um, for things like workshops and demos at conferences when you have a very short time window that you and but you want to demonstrate something but standing up at the front of a room and just doing it and having people watch is not very engaging. You want people to be able to run it and play with it for themselves, but you don't want to get them st stuck installing things. 
So you have your demo up on Binder and it's just like, hey, everybody, click this link. Here's my new, here's my new code. Here's my new suite. I've got a demo here. And um, but it sounds really useful for teaching purposes, although you're still running the risk of live demo. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. <laughs> but 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 that but that being said if you've proved if, if it works then you know that it's going to work right because it's the everything's exactly the same as it was before yeah absolutely <laughs> although we do have um how reproducible is binder issue um so binder pulls together a lot of different um uh, different tools so one really cool thing about Binder is that the main interface is something called a notebook. And this is a really cool interface that allows you to like have code snippets next to prose. So this is really good for teaching or for demonstrating because you can explain what the thing the person is about is about to run does or what the graphic outputs is about. And you have, you have the two things side by side. Um, but what the Binder team like those tools are constantly being developed and upgraded. So when you next relaunch your binder, what if the, the versions of those tools have changed? Um, so it's like, how it's reproducible meta, are the reproducible? <laughs> yeah, it's super meta, but um, that's usually how most of my conversations with Kirsty end up. <laughs> and that, and that is the, that is the point about like, it's harder than you think. Like it's a lot harder than you think. And even, you know, we can sort of start at the surface by saying, oh, no working, you know, it's really hard to reproduce anyone's findings. And then if you can't reproduce them, what are we even doing? We're not even doing science, blah, 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 blah. But actually, it is the case that almost everyone finds it pretty hard to go all the way down to getting the exact same information over time. And it's both computa computationally and technically quite hard. But there's also a lot of um, information architecture and sort of planning and thinking logically through how information will sit next to each other. And that can be very difficult as well. That takes sort of one person with a lot of time to really kind of wrap their, their head around a whole great big um, set of turtles, I suppose, <laughs> going all the way down. And the problem is so much of this work is um, it hasn't been traditionally incentivized within the academic um, ecosystem. And so in many cases, a lot of those folks who are working on Binder are doing it in their spare time, in their evenings and weekends, mm. and in between the parts of their job that they are sort of accounted on. Whereas, you know, both Sarah and I would strongly argue that this reproducibility thing you should get paid to do it. <laughs> right. It seems like it's solving quite an important uh, thing for science globally. So you've thought that some people would take the initiative to get some people working on it full time. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll leave the uh, the organisers of scientific institutes and universities of the world to, to, <laughs> to get on with that one. Uh, but actually what you're just saying leads quite nicely to the next question I had, which is... Um, because at the Alan Turing Institute, we're big fans of open research, especially big fans of open source scientific code, which I know Binder is an example of that. Um, what does it mean to be working openly? And is this something you'd like to see more of in the scientific community? Oh, my gosh. What does it mean to work openly? <laughs> wow. Um, I think it's a really big... It's honestly more of a mindset than anything differently. It's um, it's more about being willing to stand up and say, ah, folks, I might have gotten something wrong. Can someone come and check this out and just double check what I'm doing? It's having that confidence for to be working in the open, meaning that, anyone can just like come along and check out your code, right? And the majority of the time, the reason they're checking out your code is because they want to use it for themselves, which is great. That means we're solving that redundancy issue of doing the same thing over and over again and never helping each other out. Um, but I think that is a big emotional barrier to the people 
in that it can some through no fault of anybody but like working in the open can be very intimidating that oh but what if I do something wrong and what if someone right, you've got your own private code project or part of your scientific project that you know this is this is my thing I, I don't want people seeing a work in progress yeah and that is the most common thing I sit I hear like people are like yeah sure open source let's do it I'll publish it when it's ready and the whole one of the huge benefits of just publishing it now is that someone will with fresh eyes who doesn't have the as in-depth understanding as you are going to come along and find all of the little things like broken links like typos like and they're going to test your code in a way that you haven't thought of and that can just help um, lift the code up and progress it a little bit more. So there's a there's a law, it's Linus law, which is named in honor of Linus Torvalds, who created both Git, the version control system, but also the Linux kernel, which is an operating system. And the Linus law is that given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. And it's basically talking about the fact, it's just a, and a sort of abstraction of what Sarah was just saying, which is that you are just one person and you have a limit both in terms of your time but also of your expertise. And so there is a sort of deeply profound arrogance in imagining that one individual person or even one individual team would be able to build something that was perfect, boom, right when it was delivered. And yet that's what we're incentivized to do. That's what we're encouraged to do. And all of sort of society, and again, we could have a Turing podcast on capitalism if we fancied it, but I'll try not to take, take over this one. But we're encouraged very strongly to not leave ourselves vulnerable, exactly like Sarah was saying. And I don't mean vulnerable in terms of security vulnerabilities. I mean like emotional vulnerabilities, because it really sucks to have someone come over, look at your work and say, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. That's silly. You could fix that by doing this. And the the working open mindset says, I am one person. I have some amount of time and I have some amount of skills. I'm going to put my effort out into the world and somebody, and best case scenario, somebody that I don't know, somebody that I have never met will come along and will improve it and will build on top of it and either together or as a group um, over time, we'll sort of expand out this project. And so the point about working openly is there's a very, very narrow definition of it, which is that um, information is free and open. And it's not free as in beer, it's free as in speech. And so free software is software that people are liberated to use for whatever purpose. In many cases, though, if they also keep it open. And the openness and the transparency comes in from being able to see the source code. So you are able to use it for whatever else, and then you're allowed to see all the way down. You can change it to do what you fancy. But that's, that's the licensing aspect, and that's what sets it apart from proprietary or closed software. But Sarah's answer is the, is the much sort of bigger vision, this like truly transformative way of saying, together we will be able to to work around this piece of software and grow a much uh, something that is much greater than the sum of its parts yeah the 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 experience i've had with um these sorts of um open source uh code in 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 the world of science is that you know well just to give an example of what exactly it is we're talking about let's say you're a researcher that like we were talking about before, works on um, brain images and writes some writes some software that that's a really good classification algorithm that you know um, can distinguish between different diseases. Anyway, you put this software out there um, and you open source it, so other people can then you know come along and make their own version of that code with updates that make the algorithm better in some way. Um, that's, I mean, that's that's my understanding of how open source code works, and 
and thinking about the tools we use, um, GitHub, Sarah, you mentioned before, for those who aren't familiar with that, that's basically uh, an, an online service where people can host their code. And, and one of the features is exactly what we're talking about. So it, it's called a fork where someone comes along and basically makes a duplicate of that code, which they can then make their own modifications to. Um, so but I guess the second part of my question was, is it something we'd like to see more of in the scientific community? Does <laughs> yeah, Sarah go on? I just want to address something you said there, which was um, when you when you're making this duplicate, when you're making this co- copy, and you um, and you put your own modifications and updates and make the algorithm better. I feel very strongly that it's not truly open source unless you contribute those changes back to the original researcher who wrote the code. Uh, Otherwise, otherwise that's just you sitting on your own version that you. Hello everyone. And welcome to another episode of the Turing podcast. This week, we're bringing you audio from uh, a conversation I had earlier this year with a couple of uh, the researchers at the Institute um, it's not a COVID-19 related episode, but because it was recorded in May, anything we do say about the pandemic may be out of date. Well, it certainly will be out of date by now, uh, but uh, I hope you enjoy listening to it. ...and then patenting this amazing software that you've made, or it's making the pull request and working openly and giving something new to the world. <laughs> And that's the, that's the difference between the license and the like philosophy of open source and the sort of very deeply political decision that is made uh, to choose to share, to, cho- to choose to um, give something into the, into the, the sort of shared commons of, because you can, you can share data, you can improve data, it doesn't have to just be software. Um, and I think a lot of this comes my personal motivation for caring so much about this is around the fact that um there is no limit to the amount of knowledge that people can have so if we're thinking about money then there's a certain limit to amount of money if i give you some money you have more and i have less but if i teach you how to do something i lose nothing from my my knowledge I just have increased the amount of knowledge that you have. And then you are able to scale that out and you'll be able to share that knowledge with more and more people. And so answering your question about, do we think that we should be doing more of this at the Turing? I mean, my, pro- <laughs> my program is specifically around, uh, yes, the answer is a deep, strong yes to that. And I think that it's um, with a national responsibility to our funders who are our taxpayers in the vast majority of cases. So most of the people that, are, that work at the Turing, that work on projects are paid for to do various different ways th- from the British taxpayer. Um, and we should give them back. We should give them knowledge. And one of the ways that we may be able to give them knowledge is by accelerating innovation in lots of different areas, but we should be giving that away. We shouldn't be keeping it. I, I guess the question was also like the wider scientific community. Uh, not everyone's funded by the taxpayer, I suppose, but hopefully most scientific the vast, research the being The vast majority is, yeah. are, though. The vast majority okay, yeah. are. Like you could make you can you can make arguments for um, engineering firms, for example, um, financial institutions, banks. Um, you could even look at sort of pharmaceutical corporations and sure they have they have different um pressures but they will still go faster if they are able to build on top of open source code and so they are all everybody is using python in their analysis everybody is using r almost everybody will be working with data on a linux machine and those are open source tools they are built by not just academics but in many cases academics contributing their work into the open source ecosystem so everyone is using open source and if you look at web development almost everybody is delivering um is contributing into open source uh, an open source ecosystem so the web is this great example of having an open standard that actually it's much faster and easier and cheaper 
for tech companies to just go ahead and make their code available because then others will look at it, others will use it, and you have this like feed forward cycle. And I would love for us to get to that place with science as well. But the vast majority of academic research is funded by the taxpayer. It's interesting. It's interesting to note that science is behind the tech companies on that front, which is, <laughs> which is not ideal. But <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to move on to a final question, which is, um, yeah, given everything that we've discussed so far and given that the unprecedented times we live in at the moment, do you think that reproducibility of research is suffering as people for instance, scramble to get out COVID-19 papers? Um, or is this a golden opportunity to change how the scientific community works? It's both. It's both. It sort of sucks. Like, it's one of these things where um, the practices that we have at the moment that we've been talking about on this podcast, they, they are sort of perpetuated. And so there are a decent number of um, pieces of code, computational models. There's one that I'm thinking of in particular that has got a lot of criticism. Um, and there are quite a lot of studies that are very difficult to validate, that it's very difficult to review, to know how much you can trust the work. Um, so I think we do have a, in the rush for, um, trying to understand the novel coronavirus. We do have some examples of people not working reproducibly. On the other hand, um, it takes what is often an abstract concept for a lot of researchers, something that says, you know, yeah, yeah, my paper, yeah, I suppose, you know, someone should probably be able to reproduce it at some point. That seems maybe it'd be useful. And it actually turns it into something that's a lot more like life or death, right? Like if you're going to publish a right, paper yeah. that is going to make a, um, any sort of insight that might be used for clinical purposes, um, any type of understanding, I think there are a, a, a growing number of people in the academic community who say, holy moly, reproducibility is incredibly important. We have to be really, really confident about that. And I just want to reiterate a point that I made earlier, though, but with this specific example, reproducibility is not enough. So it doesn't, it's not enough to just be able to get the same answer. You also need to be able to have review of that code, review of the data that's coming in, looking at how those models change over time. So if you were looking at um, a sort of prediction, let's say, of risk of um, needing ventilation as a result of contracting coronavirus based on your ethnicity. That's a piece of information. That's an analysis that is different at different times in different places. And so if you work reproducibly, you can do your very best with the data that you have. Maybe that's um, just in Wuhan for the doctors that were there at the very beginning of this and they can release their information and they can make that available for others. And then as the virus spread around the world, we would be able to use that information and see how it mapped on in exactly the same way to new data sets or data sets as they were moving forwards in time. So you can do an analysis right now. We're recording on the 12th of May. You could do an analysis right now but we could actually run that same analysis in, for example, three weeks time to be able to know what the situation, how the situation has changed, not just in the UK, but in other areas as well. So I think actually the reproducibility aspect is it's allowing people to kind of follow the information over time rather than looking at static snapshots, which lots and lots of people are caring very, very deeply about. Interesting. Well, let me ask just one quick follow-up to that, actually, which is given the way that things are moving now, um, Sarah mentioned earlier that there was this eLife journal, but, I mean, we're, we're still in early days of the scientific community at large, you know, adopting these best practices in reproducibility, and, um, including for computational research. But imagine, you know, we, instead of COVID-19 happening now, but in 10 years' time, do you think we'd be in a much better situation for scientists to really like share 
their experiments and their results globally much more easily. I would hope so. <laughs> I, I suspect, yeah, I suspect we will have progressed, just not as progressed as my optimistic heart would have liked. <laughs> I think I think the the best case scenario that we can hope for is that as a result of this huge global crisis, we are better prepared for the next huge global crisis. Um, I think the inertia, you know, just looping all the way back to that like comment that I made at the beginning of the podcast about the fact that um, the printing press was this wonderful innovation three centuries ago now. And we haven't had a massive pressure to move on and do something really innovative in scientific publishing. Science has moved ahead since the printing press, but our communication of science hasn't massively. And I think that sometimes it's the case that you need huge shocks to a system in order to change it. And what I personally am spending a lot of time thinking about with my work hat on uh, as relates to the coronavirus um, pandemic is how do we stop the system from just sort of returning back to the status quo? How can we capture things that we've done differently um, that will improve the situation going forwards? Because I think that's, that's our biggest test, less around whether we would have done better if this had come at another time, which I think I don't feel, I don't feel desperately hopeful that we would necessarily have done it but more that we, now that we have done all of this, now that we've had these conversations, how do we maintain that momentum going forward? Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's, uh, I'm going to take that as a cautiously optimistic take on our preparedness, well, in the scientific community in the future. Um, Sarah and Kirsty, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. Do I know both of you are on Twitter. Do you want to share your your Twitter information or, or anywhere else you'd like to um, uh, plug for people to contact you online or or anything like that? Sure, absolutely. My Twitter handle is at Dr. Sarah L. Gibson. And if you want to see some of my cross-stitch stuff, I have at Sarah, <laughs> um, sorry, at uh, sgibson91.github.io slash cross stitch carpentry all separated with dashes and you can get a little bit of a lesson on how to do cross stitch and i do tweet some of my cross stitch patterns as well nice. they're freaking cool they're so cool oh, and um i am at kirsty underscore j on the twitters and i tweet a lot although i tweet less on lockdown because i think i used to do a lot of tweeting on my commute and so now i don't have that like 45 minute train journey to retweet everything but i do still tweet an awful lot and i'm very keen to engage with folks there and i just want to also shout out another twitter account which is the turing way uh, that is at turing t-u-r-i-n-g w-a-y and that's a community of more than 150 researchers who are helping to build a, a guide, a collaboratively written handbook for how to do all of this. Because as we sort of dug into on this podcast, there's a lot of skills and there's a lot of change that needs to happen around the data science ecosystem. And so I'll just sort of shout out... Um, Malvika Sharan, who's the community manager for that project, she has all the power over the Turing Way account. And I strongly recommend that you give that a follow, come along to one of our um, online collaborative working events and check out the resource because that book, that community tries to embody so much of what we've been talking about here that we can, by sharing our expertise and by working together, we're able to build a better and brighter a more reproducible future for everyone. So I want to thank everyone who's in that community. You're all my heroes. Yeah. And if you want to um, get in touch with the Binder team as well, their Twitter is at mybinderteam. And our next team meeting is on the 21st of May at 6pm British time. So BST. 
Um, and those are community calls that are open to everyone to join. So if you do follow me on Twitter, I'll be tweeting about how you can hop on that meeting and find out what we're talking about. Perfect. Yeah, that's that's a good thing to add, actually, that some of these open source projects, well, Binder, um, you know, anyone can get involved and, yeah, just contact Sarah and contact the Binder team online. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone, uh, to another episode of the Turing Podcast. To learn more about the work going on at the Alan Turing Institute, visit our website at turing.ac.uk. To get in touch with the podcast team, if you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at turing.ac.uk. Music for this episode was provided by Jamin Sun. You can listen to his latest releases at jamminson.bandcamp.com. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Calstry, Tarek Allen, Ben Walden, Effie Dennis, and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute.